as we know, China matters for Australia, that's for sure. And that happens to be the name of a new book by Batesgill and Linda Jacobson called China Matters, Getting It Right for Australia. China's growth over the last 30 years has seen that country transform into a very powerful nation. And as Batesgill and Linda Jacobson say in their book, Australia needs China far more than China needs Australia. And they say that that complicates our relationship. So I started our interview by asking Bates, what does he mean by complicates? Well, obviously, each decision point that may end up in a sensitive or difficult future or or risks uh, problems with China means that the pressures are really on our decision makers to weigh those choices extremely carefully. Uh, Because it is true, if and as uh, Beijing would like, uh, if they want to punish Australia uh, beyond rhetorical language and, for example, take decisions that could impact Australia's economy and well-being, they certainly could. In fact, you've said in the book you've got a whole chapter devoted to China's hard power, as you put it. They don't shrink from using that power, do they? They don't. And in the book, you know, we had to get it all wrapped up and send it to the publisher a few months ago. We don't even have the chance in there to talk about what is probably one of the big current examples of China's exercise of economic hard power, and that's the way that they're attempting to punish South Korea, one of its most important trade partners, for South Korea's decision to deploy anti-missile defenses. And what are they doing? Well, they've uh, uh, cut off group tours. China is the largest source of tourist income for South Korea, just as it is, by the way, for Australia. And um, discouraging Chinese from traveling to South Korea and also um, coming up with reasons to shut down some major department stores, Korean-owned department stores in China, the latte chain, uh, because uh, that uh, conglomerate in South Korea sold some land that it owned uh, to the South Korean government uh, to allow for then the placement of one of these anti-missile batteries that South Korea and the United States are deploying. In fact, you um, talk in the book about China's reaction to the Nobel Peace Prize going to Liu Xiaobao in 2010. They uh, directed their hard power at Norway, even though the Nobel Committee is not part of the Norwegian government. And uh, Norway, in, in the end, had to capitulate in 2016, last year. They did, after six or so long years of negotiation and efforts to try to restart you know, senior-level discussions, dialogue, uh, opening up of trade agreements and the like. Yeah, after about six years of some pretty difficult times with Beijing, Norway came out with a statement um, which essentially granted all of the demands that the Chinese wanted with no reciprocity, really, uh, from Beijing back to Norway. Now, here's another great example. Norway, while it's a very important uh, economy, is a very small country nevertheless uh, and does not have a lot of leverage points politically or economically with Beijing. And um, if it wanted to get a normal relationship restarted with China, it was going to have to make some concessions. Do you think that South Korea will eventually have to capitulate as well? I doubt that South Korea will capitulate on the issue of anti-missile defense, just simply because those systems are uh, so critically important for the country to defend itself against the threat from North Korea. That's a pretty clear uh, national security interest that I think they're going to have to want to abide by. But, you know, we might see um, concessions being made in other areas, maybe some sorts of 
political statements uh, that would be you know, seen as more favorable toward toward China, or even maybe possibly uh, when we have a new leadership in South Korea coming next month, maybe some uh, tempering of the close South Korea-U.S. military relationship, which was seen under the previous president, President Park. In fact, North Korea is a, a particularly interesting uh, issue in relation to China, isn't it? We've seen Donald Trump come out over the weekend saying that that America will have no problem dealing with North Korea uh, if China doesn't come to the party. What's going on there? Why doesn't China exert pressure on North Korea? Well, to be fair, uh, China has, in fact, taken part in, I think, virtually all of the major, uh, supporting virtually all of the major UN sanctions which have been placed on the North Korea regime as a way to try to get them in Pyongyang to roll back their nuclear ambitions and their ballistic missile programs. But in spite of that support, China remains North Korea's most important economic partner. It's probably its most important diplomatic and political partner still out there today. The question is why? Well, at the end of the day, the Chinese see North Korea as a a buffer state. It wants the, whatever the future outcome is going to be on the Korean Peninsula, if and as the Korean Peninsula is unified, China would certainly like to see that unfold on its terms, not on U.S. terms. It could certainly unfold in a way that the South Korean government basically takes over and we have a a unified Korea under a democratic system. But um, China would want to see that happen in a way, for example, where South Korea would no longer be allied with the United States. So basically collapse, North Korean collapse would be a disastrous situation for China. A, it would have an immediate sort of refugee impact. There's the loose nukes problem that could also arise if North Korea were to simply, if the leadership were to disappear in some sort of chaotic fashion. And then for the longer term, that chaotic collapse could mean that China was not in a position to assure that whatever reunification scenario was going to emerge was on its terms. So in the end, it holds its nose, it props up this regime in Pyongyang um, and doesn't do everything it could to see to its demise. I imagine that the rest of the world wouldn't mind if China invaded North Korea, in fact. (laughs) Well, Obviously, if that were to happen, who knows, uh, the North Koreans could certainly respond very badly and it could turn into a, a real mess, uh, especially if, if and as they do have the ability to deliver nuclear weapons, uh, which I think they're increasingly capable of, of reaching that, that capability. Australia has a foreign policy white paper due this year. Now, you've said in the book that Australia's future prosperity depends on an economic relationship with China that's different to today's. How so? What we mean in the book when we say that is that the the economic boom times, you know, on the back of the resource exports to China that have so benefited Australia for the past 22 years, uh, we know in the last year or two, three, uh, that that steadily upward trajectory is beginning to flatten out. And there's several reasons for that. I mean, the Chinese economy itself, the pace, the pace of growth in China has slowed from low double digits down to where it is today of five or six percent, you know, that's going to continue. We can't expect those high-paced boom times to, to be China's future. 
as a result, commodity prices have dropped. And you know that, while still a very important proportion of exports revenue for Australia in shipping to China, really can't be the, the center or, or some sort of a, a panacea for the future. Rather, much, much more will need to be done to tap into the services sector, the emerging middle class and consumer-led growth, which the Chinese leadership wants to transition to over the next five to 10 years. So in other words, be more prepared to take greater advantage of the growing middle class in China as an economic partner for Australia, doing more than beyond the border, as it were, uh, getting inside China as in services and, and other export, other exports that will, will take advantage of that economic transition inside China away from you know, investment-led growth, you know, the construction of infrastructure, the, the need for iron ore and energy, which has been really the core of our exports to China, and more towards a consumer-led economy. Um, so, for example, 120 million or so uh, Chinese travel abroad every year. About 1 million of them choose to come to Australia. So, you know, not even 1% of that remarkable... I didn't know that. 120 million... Uh, that's incredible. That's just going to get bigger and bigger. Where are they all going? The largest destination, uh, principally around China in in Asia. So Thailand, Taiwan, uh, Japan. I mentioned South Korea is a very large uh, uh, destination, as well as you know Europe and the United States. You know the potential to grow that uh, is enormous for Australia, but getting to 2 million would just completely overtax the tourist infrastructure in Australia to accommodate. So it just gives you a sense of the potential. Education is another enormous export industry for Australia, although most people don't think of it in that terms. About 150,000 Chinese students, international students, are attending um, schools and universities in Australia per year. That represents about 20% of all Chinese students studying abroad. So Australia is actually a probably a top three international destination for Chinese students. They pay full freight at our universities and our schools, and they provide an enormous source of, of income um, to help support our education system. Can we grow that number? Probably, but there are real risks in doing so. We don't want to lower our academic standards. We don't want certain classes like commerce schools to be overwhelmed by Chinese students, uh, which could lead to you know, lower standards and, and, and edge out promising Australian students. So there are real risks to growing that number, but it's great potential. And a, a third point I'll just make, um, which is somewhat controversial, Chinese investment. We talk about that in the book as well. We argue that uh, Australia needs to be more open uh, to the possibility of Chinese investment. We already know that foreign investment can be quite touchy uh, sometimes in Australia, uh, but we also know that Australia has always depended, always depended on foreign investment for its prosperity. Um, there just simply isn't enough capital in a country of only 23, 24 million people to invest in the way that we need to to maintain Australia's prosperity. 
we've always relied on outside investments, whether it's the UK, whether it's Japan, whether it's the United States. Today, the country with the greatest amount of capital uh, and it's and, and looking around the world to investment invest it is China. And yes, sometimes they're going to look for investments in um, potentially sensitive uh, sectors like the agricultural sector, potentially in the infrastructure sector. And we just simply argue that we shouldn't put out the unwelcome mat. Um, at the same time, we obviously can't simply throw open the doors. These investments need to be properly vetted and done in a way that's uh, politically sensitive. But we shouldn't at the same time simply hold up a stop sign because we don't like the fact that they're Chinese. There is significant touchiness, as you put it, about China in particular. And ASIO uh, advised the government against Huawei buying into the NBN for um, security reasons. And I think similar reasons were applied uh, when the Chinese company tried to buy the New South Wales power system. I think security uh, agencies are getting involved as well, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. And of course, you know, the um, uh, the Foreign Investment Review Board, uh, or FERB, plays a very important role in looking at all foreign investments, not just not just Chinese. And when there are legitimate security concerns, I think none of us should be concerned about their decisions and that they need to be followed. At the same time, though, um, there will be other areas less uh, less sensitive. I think certain agricultural uh, investments would be less of a concern on the security front, and they ought to be allowed to proceed. China, I think, is actually not one of the major investors in Australia today, so the upside potential is still rather good. Among foreign investors in the agricultural sector, for example, the biggest are, are countries like the United States or the UK or uh, the Netherlands, I believe, um, Singapore. So there, there is, I think, even less than 1% of, of Australian agricultural land today is owned by or invested in by Chinese entities. So again, um, the future is going to be different, economically speaking, for um, the Australia-China relationship. And Australians, I think, ought to be thinking hard about how that can be done in a way that's going to be most beneficial to Australia. In fact, one of your ideas, which I thought was a pretty good one, was that there should be regular whole-of-cabinet meetings just discussing China, which highlights the fact that a lot of our policy towards China is not very coordinated at the political level. Well, we find it a little bit surprising, I suppose, uh, that a country of such enormous importance uh, to Australia, not just economically, but I think increasingly in the security realm, and uh, you know, as uh, more and more um, individuals migrate to Australia from China, the number of individuals living in Australia, whether they are citizens or permanent residents, or visitors like tourists and students, you know, more and more of them are identifying as either being Chinese or of Chinese descent. Um, and that proportion is just going to get bigger as we go forward. You know, in other words, China is becoming such a more and more important and integral part of, of Australian life. Clearly, we ought to be seeing more effort at that high political level to make sure that we're doing the best we can to coordinate, to speak with one voice, to have a consensus view about what this relationship means to Australia and how to make it as best as possible beneficial to Australian citizens. 
One of the chapters in your book is written by Arthur Kroeber. It's about the Chinese economy and the challenges that they face and are transforming, as you put it before, from transforming from capital accumulation to capital productivity. But the thing that Arthur is pointing out is that it's not really happening that well. For example, in 2013, one of the things they talked about that they needed to do was restructure state-owned enterprises, but, but virtually nothing has been done on that score. There is a question mark hanging over the government's ability to um, to actually bring about the changes that are required. Yes, that chapter in our book is interesting. It provides sort of two scenarios, uh, one sort of being the good story, where those 2013 um, guidelines for reform essentially get implemented and China is able to make this successful transition that it's seeking and avoid the so-called middle-income trap. The other scenario, though, is um, basically muddling along and we'll see a continuing um, slowdown in the pace of economic growth for China. It's not a disaster disaster scenario, but it's certainly one where uh, China could risk um, not breaking through and, and, and reaching its goal of becoming a more modern and advanced and you know, fully developed economy over the next 10 to 15 years. You know, I think the biggest reasons for that, or at least what we can see so far as be, being the impediments to that, are really political. That is, um, not yet having the confidence politically to take the steps that would be needed. So, you know, massive layoffs, uh, a real restructuring of the, of the state-owned enterprise uh, sector, um, allowing the market really to have a bigger role in the allocation of resources. And even, you know, I don't think Arthur speaks about this quite so much, but introducing, you know, greater confidence in the investor community, both domestic and foreign, around uh, the, the judicial process. And, and how you know disputes and uh, legal issues are handled. You know, to take those steps, the Chinese Communist Party leadership would have to cede uh, some elements of its control, you know, to other more independent uh, forces, whether that be the market or judiciary and the like. And it just doesn't seem yet that Xi Jinping and the current leadership in China um, are prepared to seed that type of control just yet. And you know, that's going to have economic implications as well as political. I must say, I thought Arthur's pessimistic scenario was a bit darker than you're portraying it. I mean, firstly, he says that pessimistic uh, interpretation is that Xi Jinping is not actually uh, committed to the productivity agenda and is much more committed to reinforcing Communist Party control of the country. But secondly, he talks about failure and crisis emerging as a result of that. It seems to me that it it does lead to crisis and collapse. He doesn't quite go on, I don't think, to weave precisely what that all might mean, but he is worried, obviously. And I think, I don't want to put words in Arthur's mouth exactly here, but I think he does definitely lean himself towards that more pessimistic scenario because, again, of the political sort of constraints or uh, impediments which Xi Jinping sees before him. That tells us a lot really about kind of the level of confidence, the actual standing which he believes he has or doesn't have um, as he moves into this very important political transition 
at the end of this year, uh, at the end of 2017, when presumably he will receive his mandate to, for another five years in power. But again, if he's lacking confidence politically about the kinds of steps he should be taking economically, then I suspect the next couple of years will be more of the same, um, that he may not yet feel he has the political standing to, to take those steps that he needs to on the economic front. In fact, I wonder whether, you know, given what you call, you, know, you talk about China's uh, propensity to use its hard power, as you put it, that it might be better if China actually does have a bit of a crisis in the next few years to learn humility. I mean, everybody, most other countries have crises and have to learn economic humility, and perhaps China needs to do that as well. Uh, yes, I, of course, none, none of us want to wish ill on a country of such uh, importance, but it may well be the case. My concern in that sort of a scenario is, is what is the reaction? I'm more attuned as a international relations and, and sort of political science person to trying to understand what might be the external implications of an internal crisis for China. Depending you know, on how serious that crisis is, I think we would want to be worried that uh, a person like Xi Jinping would turn to the outside world and you know try to shore up some of his legitimacy or shore up some of his standing in the country by stoking nationalism, you know, for example, by uh, confronting Japan in the East China Sea uh, or you know, doing more in the way of island building, land reclamation, militarization, and even confrontation in the South China Sea, particularly against the United States or maybe some of its China's smaller neighbors that are other claimants in that part of the part of the world. And that's very worrisome, obviously, um, maybe all the more so when we, when we tie that into the, the advent of President Trump, who himself, you know, obviously is quite unpredictable. And it's just not where that sort of a scenario would spin. It could spin into very dangerous directions. Yeah, well, let's just talk about Donald Trump for a minute. You've said in the book that Australia should stop seeing China in only economic terms and America in only security terms. And in relation to Trump, you said his appearance intensifies Australia's predicament. Could you explain what you mean by that? We find, looking at the debate in Australia, that it's a bit, I would say, simplistic or stale in that it seems to see things in a very black and white way. China is Australia's most important economic partner, which I would actually differ with that view, but I think that is the widespread view. And the United States is China's most important security partner. And that with that dichotomy, this forces Australia into some sort of a choice. First of all, um, obviously, the United States is an extremely important economic partner to Australia, particularly as an investor. It's the largest investor in Australia by far, by far. And obviously an important trading partner for Australia as well. It's, it's better to say that China is the largest trading partner for Australia. That's true. Um, you can argue about whether it's the most important economic partner. And then on the other hand, yes, the United States is a treaty ally and, and is clearly the most important security partner for Australia. But China is increasingly an important security factor at a minimum and in some ways even a partner. For example, working with the Chinese in low-level but still constructive uh, joint military exercises. China is contributing to the anti-piracy uh, flotillas uh, off uh, in, in the Gulf of Aden. 
And, and China is only going to become a, a bigger and bigger security player in this part of the world, in Australia's neighborhood. So we wanted to try to push our readers to think a little bit more nuanced ways that both the United States and China are both economic and security partners. And the, and the sooner we can sort of wrestle with that and understand that that's the way the future is going to look, the better off Australia can be. Now, Donald Trump, you know, this throws a real uh, sort of spanner into much of this because of, of his unpredictability. Um, you know, it was not helped at all uh, by the by the telephone call, you know, now infamous telephone call, which which the president had with with Prime Minister Turnbull. And we've seen now in Australia the emergence, well, I should say a, a stronger vocalization of what has been a longstanding uh, skepticism and questioning within certain quarters of Australia about how close Australia should be with the United States. This is going to be something of volatility I think we're just going to have to live with uh, for the near term. I don't think it should fundamentally alter that framework, which we suggest in the book, about trying to think a lot more in more complex and nuanced ways about how to look at the two, both as security and economic partners. One of the ways in which I think he may be stale is thinking about it all in, in terms of security, in terms of military uh, things, as opposed, as, as you point out in the book, you know, it's it's really, t- to a large extent, more about cyber security these days, particularly with China. Australian security, you know, it probably in the near to medium term, you know, we're not talking about Chinese gunboats off the coast of Australia or submarines, you know, mini submarines sailing in our harbors. It's going to be a lot more complex than that. And as you say, it's going to entail new threats, such as uh, cyber-related threats, which are in many ways invisible or certainly very, very difficult to discern and protect against. Uh, China's going to be thinking of ways, certainly, because of our allied relationship with the United States. China is going to be thinking of ways of how they might want to employ that type of attack, if need be, um, in the future. So that's going to be a problem for Australia to face going forward. I was talking to Bates Gill, author of China Matters, Getting It Right for Australia. 